Welcome to Blockchain Won't Save the World, the podcast that aims to demystify blockchain and exponential technologies with real-world examples for beginners and experts alike. Because blockchain won't save the world. We will. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. Today, we're going to cover the interesting and murky world of stablecoins. And I'm joined by two pioneers in this space who've just launched their own Swiss franc stablecoin. It's Goraz Ogwerk and Gavin Pacini from Signum. Guys, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. And I know you guys are coming to us live from quarantine or isolation in Switzerland, uh, and I hope you're safe and well. Before we get into the content and the topic of stablecoins, give us a little bit of a background as to your origin story in blockchain. How did you get into it? So my story is uh, pretty much like everyone else's. I think I was piqued by curiosity to start you know, exploring what blockchain is. And, and you know, once you start exploring it, it, it just becomes this endless avenue of Eureka and wow moments. So my start was really uh, based also with the hype that was going around 2016, 2017, uh, when all the, the ICOs started popping up. At the time, I lived in Slovenia, who had one of the more dynamic ecosystems in terms of blockchain companies coming up. And uh, at the time, I was working with Deloitte, and then we kept getting clients who were interested in, in you know, doing things with us and having services provided by us. And then that's how we got, got interested in, and then hooked on it. So I, I started looking into this business model, started looking into blockchain, understanding it, you know, looking into different concepts, protocols, consensus mechanisms. And then, yeah, it just, you know, kind of took off from there. So once it piqued my interest, I think I couldn't stop reading about it for approximately nine months. So every evening spending like two to three hours just reading up on blockchain and trying to understand everything. And then about one year ago, um, I decided, you know, it's time to make a change. So just go from more the consulting part to doing something tangible with it. And, you know, I found Signum, which at the time was not a bank yet, but we were more of a fintech startup trying to acquire a banking license. And in terms of what we were trying to do in merging the two worlds together, so the blockchain world together with the financial world. It really um, gave me the, the confidence that, that we're doing something special here and something very unique. So it was for me a no-brainer to jump on board. And one year later, it's been an amazing ride. Thanks, Goraz. And in terms of your journey, were digital assets always something that was close to you? Was that the fascination at the start? Actually, it was uh, kind of the fascination at the start was more cryptography and then, you know, how this encryption of the wallets worked and, and you know, the, the whole public key, private key, signing messages, like all, all these stuff got me, got me very interested because at the time this was very, very, how should I say, for somebody used to doing transactions, it was quite uh, unnatural because you had to, you know, write exact numbers, copy paste. If like one letter was off, you know, the transaction was gone forever. So all these things were really something that got me thinking, hey, why, why does this work the way it does? And how does this connect to the real world? And how do we do it in the real world today? And then you see like the whole, you know, then you get the whole grasp for the concepts of decentralization and why decentralization is important. And then there's no... You know, single one point of failure, and when you compare this to the today's systems, it's it's just like revolutionary. 
So at a certain point in time, I got like this, this fever, you know, it's, blockchain is going to change the world and it's going to be everywhere. And then, you know, blockchain is the way to go. Thanks, Gorazd. And Gavin, tell us how you got into blockchain. Sure, Anthony. Yeah. So for me, it's a similar story as, as you guys in that um, I was working in Deloitte as well, in Deloitte's EMEA blockchain lab based in Dublin. And there I got to work with many different blockchain platforms, all the top tier ones. So you've obviously Hyperledger Fabric, Corda, and then on the public side, Bitcoin, Ethereum, VeChain, EOS, and, and many more. And really the reason I got into them in the first place, I had heard about Bitcoin back in 2011 originally. A friend sent me the very first website that went up and I thought, well, this is a competitor to PayPal. Um, I definitely regretted not realizing the possibility behind it. And a few years later, I went back and revisited the white paper, read it and realized, okay, this is a, a game changer. And I really saw it as the um, marriage between cryptography and economics, which is obviously the new uh, field that people are talking about, also known as crypto economics. And the more I read about this, the more I went down the rabbit hole, the more I, I fell in love with this entire space. So from um, originally a, a payment startup, which was acquired by Stripe, then I joined Deloitte, working full-time then in, in blockchain, um, and now in Signum, where I get to work much closer to the crypto, which for me still I see as the Bible of blockchains. It's, it is where it all started and has still some phenomenal use cases, a lot of which are still developing. And I get to work there with, with amazing people in, in a regulated setting, obviously, with the banking license now. And it really is a dream come true. Down the rabbit hole and living the dream. The Crypto Bible, a lot of beautiful words there, Gavin. And thank you again both for the intro. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about what Signum do. Not trying to make this a pitch, not trying to make this a marketing ploy, but genuinely, I'm really interested in how do you create a business out of stable coins? What is, what is the purpose of Signum? What do you guys get up to? Signum was basically found on the idea that the traditional banking world and the new emerging digital asset world need a bridge. So there was still a huge disparity between this new economy that we saw popping up with all the crypto assets, ICO projects, uh, these amazing new financial instruments that were running on blockchain, but it still had no medium to transact with the, the financial world as we know it today. So that's how the idea of the first digital asset bank came about. But we strongly also believed that digital assets are, are the future of the financial industry, and then we still do today. So this is how Signum was then founded on, the, on these two pillars. And today, uh, we are a fully regulated bank focused on providing digital assets to institutional clients. We offer clients the possibility to buy cryptocurrencies and store them safely within our bank. We offer them the, the possibility to trade these crypto assets through our brokerage. Uh, we have developed asset management products that are focused solely on blockchain protocols and digital asset fund managers. We also offer our clients crypto-backed loans. And one of our core pillars is also our tokenization platform, uh, where we see uh, a lot of the future of the financial industry developing in. So kind of a platform where people can tokenize different types of assets, commodities, equities, and trade them safely and securely on a marketplace. And uh, as, as last but not least, we also offer our platform to other financial institutions would like to give their clients exposure to digital assets and crypto, but do not necessarily in the first step want to invest in the technology so they can do this safely and securely through our banking platform. 
So it's a crypto bank that offers products directly to customers, but also it's a crypto bank to help other banks to enhance their capabilities in, in the digital asset space. Gavin, help me break this down a little bit. To somebody who doesn't have a deep understanding of the financial services industry, what's the importance of stable coins or the proposition that you guys are bringing to the market? Sure. So I think it's important to say as well, I think the easiest way to kind of sell the value proposition of Signum is we essentially give you a, an IBAN, so an international bank account number, fully regulated compliant IBAN that's owned by us. Alongside that, we give you a Bitcoin address, an Ethereum address, um, and in the future, some more uh, cryptocurrency addresses. So it really is that kind of all-in-one platform. And I think that's really important to understand, as Gora said, there hadn't been such a bridge before. And, and that's why we do call ourselves a digital asset bank. We support fiat, but our unique selling point really sits is on the digital asset side. And like you said, part of that is having a stable coin. So for some of our customers that want to invest in the digital asset space, obviously Bitcoin, Ethereum, and, and other currencies are a valid way to get interested in that and, and get some exposure on, on, that, uh, on those assets. However, when trading those assets and when wanting to use blockchains for value-add features, and I'll, I'll get exactly to what I mean in a second, you generally want some stability. So if you look at the price of Bitcoin, Ethereum, it's obviously very volatile. And it, this is a, a function of the market, right? It's freely traded. It's 24-7. It's affected like any other asset. So then if you want to do uh, some of the new exciting concepts that blockchains bring around, such as smart contracts and enhanced business processes, which all the blockchains are promising, you probably want something which is more stable than Bitcoin and the Ether token. Um, this is where stable coins come in. So one example of this that we like to use, as everyone is talking about digitizing supply chains, if you look at something which is tracking a supply chain, at some point in time, there will need to be an exchange of currency or an exchange of value. Here, if you are using blockchains for all your transfers and, and tracking of the supply chain, when it comes to the point in time where, where money needs to change hands, if you then call out to a service like PayPal or Venmo or any of these guys, and no disrespect to them, of course, they serve their purpose very well, you've kind of gone against your own ethos there. So you, for what you've tried to do is you've tried to decentralize your, your problems that you're having. You've tried to empower, let's say, everyone in your value chain. And then to settle the payment, you go to this third party. And what if this third party doesn't like someone in your value chain or they wrongly ban someone in this value chain? You're kind of out of luck in that case. So with stable coins, what they allow you to do is represent fiat-based currencies. So for example, the, the Swiss franc, and that's what we have, is a digital representation of the Swiss franc on the Ethereum blockchain. Then you can actually get perfect delivery versus payment. And that can be in terms of existing financial products, which normally take a few days to settle, although everyone doesn't like banking examples. So it could even be in something like a supply chain or trading energy. If you want to trade energy on a, on a distributed network with other participants, um, let's say me and Gorazd have solar panels and, and I get a surplus of energy, I want to sell it to Gorazd. Me personally, I would probably be happy accepting Bitcoin or Ether for that, but the average Joe might not want to accept this volatile asset. And that is exactly where stablecoins come in. So they allow us to settle with fiat-like currencies, still using new and innovative concepts such as smart contracts. So it's like giving your supply chain a cryptocurrency wallet and a bank account in one. What you're doing is you're merging the physical bank account that most of the regular commerce that happens today goes through, but you're also allowing the opportunity for that digital asset to pass between parties in a network or in a supply chain or different suppliers in a way that can be instant and cost-free. 
Yep, exactly. The cost-free part can depend. <laughs> uh, we can go into the different models about how different stablecoins make money, um, but it's definitely reduced to existing payment processors. And I think the beauty of it is, is that you know, in, in an ideal setup, the network itself owns that currency or, or has some control in that currency. So they won't be censored as much. I want to get into the how do you put a Swiss franc on the Ethereum blockchain, but I suspect we probably need to do a little bit of 101 first. Do you guys want to take us through the different types of stablecoin and specifically where does the Signum Swiss franc stablecoin sit with on that spectrum? Because I know in the past few months, we've seen a number of announcements, a number of governments launching uh, central bank digital currencies. We've seen Facebook's Libra. Obviously, you guys have got your own proposition and we've got the vanilla stablecoins that are out there already, such as Tether. Take us through the spectrum of different stablecoins and help us understand what do they do? How are they different? So in general, you know, we can kind of see why they're an important part of the ecosystem. And as you said, Anthony, they, they come in many different forms. So there's kind of three high level forms that we can look at. There are centralized crypto collateralized stable coins, decentralized crypto collateralized stable coins, and centralized fiat collateralized stable coins. Rolls off the tongue beautifully. It really does. <laughs> um, but each word, each word means something very specific. So if you look at, let's start off with the centralized crypto collateralized stablecoin. I'm going to break down each word individually. So centralized, when we say centralized, what we mean here is that you're trusting a, a third party in order to manage and reconcile that stablecoin. Now, when we talk about crypto collateralized, what that means is that you're using a cryptocurrency, could be Bitcoin or Ether, as collateral against that stablecoin. Now, how this works is that you would effectively give your Bitcoin to a third party. Let's just take for argument's sake that Bitcoin is worth $10,000 at the moment, then they would give you a, a certain ratio. So let's say they give you 50%, and now you have $5,000 to play with. Now, the way this works is that the third party will monitor the price of Bitcoin. And then if the Bitcoin price starts to dip too close to the threshold, which they've set, in this case, 50% equaling $5,000, they can take back that $5,000 and, and liquidate the position. So if you look at each word there that I said, so centralized, crypto, collateralized, that's exactly what we're talking about. You're trusting someone, giving them your Bitcoin, and in return, they will give you access to funds. This is also the basis for a Lombard loan, but I won't get into that right now. What, what gets more exciting, because in this scenario, you do have to trust someone and you're giving them crypto, um, is decentralized crypto collateralized. So the keyword that we've changed now is we've gone from centralized to decentralized. And what that means is that you don't need to trust a third party, but you still are using crypto as, as the collateral in order to get access to a fiat representation. A great example of this is um, MakerDAO and their coin DAI on the Ethereum blockchain. And the way this works is they've created a platform uh, and actually it's based on a set of smart contracts which track the price of Ethereum and the Ether, well, really Ether against the dollar. And they can do this autonomously without a single point of failure, without a company behind it. And this system will self-regulate. And if I give it one Ether at, let's again, just pick a nice number, $300, then I can maybe get access to $150 worth of value. In this case, their token, which is called DAI. Now, this opens up a ton of more questions as in who builds the smart contracts? How safe are they? What happens as my crypto starts to go down in value? What happened a few weeks ago in March when, uh, when the markets obviously had a massive downturn? I think we can get into some of these later because these are all obviously very valuable topics, but that high level, that's how the decentralized crypto collateralized stablecoins work. 
And then we move on to what we are building in, and what we've built in Signum, along with some of my amazing colleagues, which is a centralized fiat collateralized. Now here, we don't need to worry about any ratios or the price of a, of a different asset, because as a, as a bank, as a regulated bank, what we do is give you an IBAN, you send us Swiss francs, and then in your e-banking platform, we generate a, a representation of the Swiss francs which you've given us on the Ethereum blockchain. So it is a one-to-one -one mapping. If you give us 100 francs, then there are some small fees in the Ethereum blockchain, but you get very, very close to 100 digital Swiss francs, our, our token. And that's in essence how centralized fiat collateralized stablecoins work. Now with this, you will notice the this, this centralized keyword is brought back in. Of course, now you need to trust that third party that's minting and burning as we call it, these tokens. There are some notable examples out there of companies that are doing this in let's just say a not so regulated way. Um, and obviously, you know, we don't endorse those, which is why we saw in the market a massive gap for a bank, the world's first bank regulated stablecoin owned and built and minted by us. So we hold, you know, effectively your fiat in, in a bank account. It's all audited. It's actually held with uh, the Swiss National Bank. And then we give you that representation. So that's one example of a uh, fiat collateralized stablecoin. Thanks, Gavin. Goraz, anything to add on that as a pretty comprehensive introduction? But uh, Goraz, your thoughts, please. Yeah, I, I would add one more. So it's, um, I, I think it's kind of like a fiat collateralized, but it, it's a CBDC. So like the central bank backed uh, team. So these, I think they exist to some degree. I think Marshall Islands and a couple of uh, smaller uh, nations have them already, but they are currently, I think, all the rage that everybody's talking about. I mean, in, in some of the you know world's events lately have pushed the discussions even further. I think Libra was one of the triggers, but also uh, like the, the crisis in, in Venezuela and in some other countries where you know fiat was hard to come by it really made a compelling case for for cbdc's to be issued and, and and you know to be used by the public thank you very much gents and so gavin what is the problem that you guys are trying to solve i understand that what we have today is we've got decentralized cryptocurrencies that are accessible to all it feels like and i've said this on other shows that there's a bit of a user experience challenge between managing hot and cold wallets being able to understand and be comfortable and competent managing public and private keys. But is there a more human-centric or is there a more intimate problem that you're trying to solve here? Yeah, I mean, part of Signum's mission is really empowering everyone access to digital assets and, and what they bring. Um, obviously, we have to start off small and we're starting in Switzerland. But it is, I mean, I mean, at the moment, you know, we're seeing lots of different reasons for digital representations. And as Gore has correctly touched on as well, in terms of central bank digital currencies, potentially being the future for our applications that we're we're currently building and which we'll be releasing in the future which uh, we can't talk in too much detail about right now and um, we needed uh, a stablecoin frankly one that met all our requirements didn't exist and so we sought out to create it we, we thought we could ultimately do it better and and we also then put it out into market as, as a bit of its own product but really what it's going to be doing is um enabling and, and being the gateway into future products as I said, specific examples for us, I can't go into too much detail, but let's say real estate becomes tokenized and we get rid of those god-awful pieces of paper, which could very easily be forged, um, or PDFs, which also can be very easily forged if anyone's ever used Photoshop, then you know, really a representation of something like a house on, on a blockchain. And again, really 
it's worth saying, I've been talking a lot about Ethereum just because that's what we've launched on, but we are proponents of, of blockchains. We're blockchain agnostic. So let's say that you've now represented a, a house on a blockchain. You need to still that kind of way to be able to transfer at, at a stable currency. In this scenario here, for the human element, if we take away all the um, kind of underlying advantages to, to the existing financial ecosystem, what you what you see is if you're going to get a loan, and what we're seeing, this is more into the decentralized finance space, something like peer-to-peer -peer lending. Now, if, if you do peer-to-peer -peer lending, again, that's happening you know, with different currencies through third parties. There is a lot around financial inclusion as well in peer-to-peer -peer lending for maybe allowing people access to, to larger liquidity in order to maybe buy their first home. And if you do all this work where you now allow lending on chain and you open up these platforms, at the end of the day, if you still need to turn that into cash and then that still gets turned into a PDF or a deed on a piece of paper, we're kind of, again, back at square one. And we, we kind of ask ourselves, why have we done all this if still things are going to be reconciled like that in, in such a tradition, traditional way? So really, it's, it is an ecosystem play. And they're always hard to talk about in, in you know alone. But what this really is doing, the stablecoin, is opening up the floodgates into those new use cases, which we're going to see. And, and just one is the digitization of, of real estate. Another could be digitization of shares, digitization of cars. I know everyone says, where do you stop tokenizing? And Anthony, you have a great line around tokenizing a fish. That would probably be the line. <laughs> but you know, large assets which have um, you know, a, a large financial impact, I think it makes a lot of sense to streamline the financial infrastructure that sits around those. Yeah, and I think you know one of the cooler use cases of a stablecoin is also so if if you look how value is exchanged today, you always need different types of intermediaries who guarantee for the deal or transaction to happen. So be it in in the payment sphere or be it in securities trading. So there is always many middlemen who take a lot of the transaction costs, make systems are not interoperable. Uh, more complex, slower, and uh, with a digital stablecoin, you're basically able to settle digital assets versus digital asset. Now, this creates several efficiencies, one of them being that all the intermediaries become unnecessary anymore, so you don't need a central clearing counterparty. You don't need basically anybody between the transaction from client to client because they know with guaranteed certainty that they are transacting amongst each other. So their collateral is posted and, and the fiat is posted in a digital form so they can settle instantly. Now, what this means is that you take a lot of intermediation out of the value chain. You make transactions a lot faster. By a lot faster, I mean, you know, a couple of seconds as opposed to, you know, a couple of days. And you make them a whole lot cheaper because the transactions itself you know the cost of the transaction is not exponentially higher because you need several parties in between the transacting counterparties got you so you're reducing cost you're trying to drive efficiencies you can try and make some of the activities as near real time as possible you can probably lock down to multiple micro payments during a particular activity again thinking about the smart cities or iot types of use cases and Ultimately, it's a more transparent system for the user. Correct, yeah, yeah. I want to click on to something you said before, Gavin, as you were explaining the Signum approach. You talked about putting a Swiss franc on the Ethereum blockchain, which is a wonderful thing to be able to say, but it sounds a little bit abstract to me. Could you talk us through what that means in practice and what it takes to build a stablecoin? 
Yes, yeah, it's a great point. And um, what I'll do is I'll, I'll kind of teether on the edge of going very technical and not <laughs> different parts, but I'll try to keep everyone interested while, while I do it. So the first thing to realize, just to level set, the Ethereum blockchain obviously being the largest public blockchain, which supports smart contracts. If there's any Bitcoin maximalists out there, I know Bitcoin has scripting. It's not Turing complete. <laughs> so we, we looked at the Ethereum blockchain and, and saw it as the natural place to start with our stablecoin. Again, not to say it, we're closed off to other blockchains by any means. But the ecosystem and the developer ecosystem really behind Ethereum is, is just so large and so much greater than, than any other blockchain out there today. And also the interoperability. So we're seeing this, especially in the decentralized finance space. And I could talk about that for hours. I know that's not the topic, but maybe for another one about how in decentralized systems and, and these open systems, developers and, and users can start plugging different things together and creating new use cases. So long story short, it was, it was clear for us to start there uh, with Ethereum. And what it really means to, to put a Swiss franc on the Ethereum blockchain and to tokenize anything is you need to create a representation of that asset. We used uh, in the Ethereum case, the ERC20 standard, which is essentially a standard, an interoperable standard for representing fungible tokens or fungible assets. So obviously fungible in this case, meaning one Swiss franc is one Swiss franc. There shouldn't be any difference between one Swiss franc and another. We took this standard, which is a well-documented, well-tested and well-audited standard used by many different projects on the Ethereum blockchain. Again, along with some of my fantastic colleagues, we added in different measures on top of this because obviously as a regulated bank, we need to um, ensure different things with our stablecoin. I might let Goraz go into more detail on the real regulation side, but what that means is adding things like a whitelist, pausing, confiscation, all this stuff is coded into our smart contracts and it's extending the ERC-20 standard. So it's backwards compatible with the ERC-20 standard. However, we obviously needed some extra control there. KYC, AML, it's all a part of the token. And this is all public. The smart contract is public. It's on Etherscan. Anyone can go and see this. And I think that's the beauty of it is even if we do pause it, even if we don't whitelist you, you, you can see why. I mean, it, we're, not, we're not trying to hide anything. We're just trying to operate a very transparent and, and regulated stablecoin. And what we do when um, a user submits Swiss francs to us, it's again, simply via an IBAN transfer, for example, is we store, we store and block those funds again with the Swiss National Bank, and then we mint or create the equivalent amount of francs on the Ethereum blockchain. And then at this point in time, you effectively have what you're used to with a bank account. And again, we try to make this as user-friendly as possible. In our e-banking platform, this looks like sending money from one account to another. Um, let's just say you have one account for daily spending and one account for saving. It really is as seamless as that. But now instead of an IBAN, you have an Ethereum address. And with that comes lots of potential, um, as I said, for things like exchanging, for different equity platforms, for different tokenization platforms, peer-to-peer -peer lending, all these things, are, the doors are, are opened up wide. In what you've said there, Gavin, there's a definite tension between the decentralized traditional cryptocurrency approach and what you can observe that a regulated bank requires. So you talk about whitelisting, you talk about KYC, you talk about the ability to pause or confiscate. Very clearly, those are things that you know, are not as part of the design principles in the fully decentralized world. But in order to enable access to digital assets, that's something that the traditional world or the, the fiat world or the banking and regulated capital world needs to understand. Goraz, let's not go too far into banking regulation because I'm pretty sure that we'll send the audience to sleep. But what were some of the considerations that you had to then build into your platform to make sure that you could bridge both worlds? Well, I think the most important ones is, is being 
compliant with anti-money laundering uh, regulations. So we needed to make sure that we, at any point in time, know who exactly has what amount of uh, the digital Swiss franc and what they're transacting it against. So um, in that regard, the whitelisting feature is, I think, an important feature to the smart contract that enables us really to lock the wallets which can transact with the digital Swiss franc so that it does not, you know, uh, all of a sudden pop up on some decentralized exchange. That, that's, I think, the most important consideration. Other considerations are, of course, in terms of how it's being custodized. But since, you know, we custodize other digital assets and cryptocurrencies under regulated setup as well. So this was already taken care of uh, with other implementations that we did for custody. And I want to clarify a certain point here because I'm sure some in the audience will ask. You're writing an amount of the digital Swiss franc onto the Ethereum blockchain. Are you giving the holder the equivalent of Ether in that point? Or is, is this just an immutable IOU to say that Signum Bank will pay back that amount once the token is recognized? Yeah, so, so very, very apt question, Anthony. In this case, we are effectively a counterparty and, and we're very aware of this. And I think when you talk about decentralization plus regulation, we get into maybe not so much fun for everyone, but it's, it's essentially our bread and butter. And we try to bridge those worlds as best as possible. So as part of that, we do have some concessions we need to make and, and edge towards the more centralized side. One of those is that effectively we are still holding those funds. And as part of that, we think we are better positioned to do that, as I said, than, than other people as a regulated bank. But what we effectively have on the Ethereum blockchain is the exact representation of the amount of funds that are in your account. So it's worth saying the funds don't leave your account. We lock them in your account. However, we are still ultimately the bank that has those funds. So it's very, very clearly segregated on, on our core banking system. It's very, very clearly segregated on the Ethereum blockchain. And you can personally see it on both. But at the end of the day, yes, to answer your question, when they trade it around, it is you know locked in our system. But the core point here is the facilitation of trading digital assets or enabling a digital asset ecosystem in a way that's recognized and regulated in the real world. Exactly. And, and that really comes back to our ethos. Again, I also want don't want to sound like I'm shilling Signum. <laughs> I probably am just too big a fan. But I mean, that's exactly our, our mission statement at the end of the day. It, it really is um, facilitating the regulated access into digital assets and stable coins and the concessions that come with regulating it is, is a part of that. But we think it's a, a valid one to make. Thanks, Gavin. So I think we've got the broad technical understanding of what it is you're trying to offer or the value you're trying to create. I'd love to go a level deeper now. What does it take to build a stablecoin? Sure. So here um, I'll go in, in much more depth. I mean, as I said, what we did on the Ethereum blockchain, I think I, I pretty well covered on the ERC20 side, adding the whitelisting, etc. So that is all coded with Solidity. Um, and as I said, that it, they are based on open standards. One of the most important parts about putting something onto a public blockchain is that you are happy with the security. Now, obviously, as well as a regulated bank, we have you know, standard IT and, and uh, information security requirements. When it comes to the Ethereum blockchain, you probably want to take them up a notch again, which we did. So we, we had our code audited by a third party, a very, very reputable third party in the Solidity space. We got a clean bill of health essentially back. Um, and then when we knew we were good to go on the, on the Ethereum side, one portion of the Ethereum side, as we start to get more into the traditional side, is your integration with a hardware security module. So at face value, Signum is a custodian of your digital assets. So when you open a bank account with us, we do generate and we, and we allow you to generate as many as you want, private keys. 
So these are ultimately your access into the blockchain ecosystem. They allow you access into your funds that are there. So we have what I can say is a few different HSM providers. Again, just for um, security reasons, we distribute our risk across the OEMs, so the original equipment manufacturers. These are all banking grade or above, is, is all I can say there as well. Extremely solid hardware security modules built by reputable companies, again, stored in banking grade tier four data centers. We do this and we, we really don't take a single shortcut on the security side of things. So now what we have effectively is, uh, is a set of smart contracts deployed on the Ethereum public chain. We have private keys for each of our clients and we allow our clients access to, to manage them. And now we can start to assign balances to, to people. So if that's the case of Bitcoin and, and Ether itself, then you need to buy them. If it's the case of the stablecoin, which we're talking about, then we, we assign a balance to individuals, which is called minting in, in the blockchain world, based on the francs that you put through our system. So obviously, we, not, not every single franc you put through our system needs to be in, in stablecoin. We have normal bank accounts. But when you want to put it into the, the digital Swiss franc, then we mint it directly against that Solidity code. And we use your public key which comes from the HSM, so the public part of your private key, to, to assign those funds to you. And again, this is a really important consideration because some people will look at centralized exchanges and, and they'll think of horror stories, essentially. And what we really want to do here, again, is set out that we are a centralized custodian and that is effectively the point. We, we are there for people who don't want to manage their funds don't want to manage their, their keys. Um, we're there for people that don't feel like they're adept enough to manage their keys. And that, that's exactly the kind of clientele that we're serving. People that might be a bit nervous about putting large sums of cryptocurrencies on a USB key under their mattress. These are the people that, that um, we're essentially solving this problem for. So that's the hardware security module side. And again, I could go on for days about the security elements with that. But the final piece that's very important that ties this all together in, in the banking context is integrating all of this with your core banking system. And that again goes back to what I alluded at the start, which is we link an IBAN to Ethereum and Bitcoin addresses. This, honestly, out of all of this might have been the, the hardest part. Core banking systems are, are amazingly well-built systems they are not as up to date on cryptocurrencies. So again, we could probably do a full podcast on that, but to cut it short, um, I mean, a ton of work went in from, from myself and my colleagues in terms of representing that digital Swiss franc in the core banking system, um, ensuring that the core banking system, the HSM and our smart contracts all work well together. And the core banking system is, a, is an integral part for maintaining your banking license. So every interaction with the stable coin is mirrored on the Ethereum blockchain and in our core banking system, which obviously allows us to do our regulatory reporting, our corporate functions, um, and all the other fun stuff that goes along with being um, a holder of a, of a Swiss banking license. Good stuff. And you've got onto a really good point there. I also want to give a nod to the podcast that came out last weekend, which was Antonio Senatore, who I know we all know very, very well, Gavin, who's your mentor and CTO for a while. And the one thing that he said around any blockchain project, the HSMs are typically some of the most challenging and painful things to do. Although he did leave out or didn't caveat the fact that integration into core banking systems is probably even harder than that. So, uh, so anyone out there trying to set up that sort of environment, beware, or at least be wary that it may take you some time. Another thing that you said in there, Gavin, was minting. And this is particularly topical given the current situation that a number of countries are looking to offer bailouts or to issue funds specifically to help economies bounce back from the current pandemic. What prevents you guys from minting Swiss francs that don't exist? What, what prevents you from creating tokens and just issuing a whole bunch of Swiss francs that people can then go and spend freely in the market? 
so the first thing is uh, that, that that prevents us from spending them in the market is obviously they're whitelisted. So you cannot take the digital Swiss franc and use it on Amazon or any similar payment gateway. So the use case for the digital Swiss franc is primarily within the Signum ecosystem. So it means, first of all, whatever digital Swiss francs are minted are used uh, within the platform. The second one is the smart contract is written in a way that there always needs to be a backing one-to-one. So for every one Swiss franc that is minted, there needs to be one Swiss franc deposited with the Swiss central bank. So in, in, in that regard, we can never just start printing digital Swiss francs out of thin air. There needs to be a collateral base at the Swiss natu- National Bank present. And I guess that's heavily regulated or the people who are providing assurance on your technology will assure that that's not the case where there, there couldn't be any sort of misdemeanors or any dodgy business happening under the surface in the technology. Yes, I think Gavin mentioned previously our, our smart contracts have been audited by reputable parties and, and have been confirmed that they work as they should. So there is no back doors or, or hidden, uh, hidden code snippets in there that would allow for such uh, malicious behavior. I trust you guys and I know that you would never do anything like that, but it's important to know and it's a question that I had in the back of my head, specifically when it comes to minting. As with any blockchain ecosystem or cryptocurrency or digital asset ecosystem, scaling is a really big part of this. You mentioned that currently this is available within the Signum ecosystem. Gorez, where does this go next? How do we make sure that we can expand the digital asset ecosystem? How are you planning to look at scaling Signum or the the digital Swiss franc so that this can be used and more people can see the benefit? If we're talking about stable coins in general, I think it's, it's, it's a different discussion than maybe from the digital Swiss franc. I mean, the digital Swiss franc has kind of, you know, a pretty straightforward scaling agenda. So the the first step is really to scale within the Signum ecosystem. So the Signum ecosystem will scale with the amount of clients and partners being associated with the ecosystem. So, you know, with the customer growth will also come the scale with the digital Swiss franc. And the second, uh, I would say the second round of scaling will come once other financial institutions will also develop technical capabilities to transact with the digital Swiss franc. So then, you know, we can connect with other trusted financial intermediaries where they can also use the digital Swiss franc for uh, their own customers or their own financial instrument purposes. So that will be the second round of scaling. And then, you know, this is further, further down the line speaking, you know, very, very visionary, uh, there will likely be a CBDC future during the next three to five years. So you will have, you know, basically digital fiat floating around. So by that time, probably the the digital Swiss franc that we have right now will become some sort of a digital Swiss franc issued by the Swiss Central Bank. So you guys are really leading the industry on this one. It's something that the world believes or those who are insiders to central bank digital currencies or digital assets believe central banks are probably the right entity to issue these sorts of digital assets. But in the absence of a central bank taking that step, you guys have stepped up to deliver that functionality yourselves. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So when a central bank digital currency from the Swiss central bank comes along, what then becomes a Signum? Yeah, great point as well, Anthony. Um, 
really, we would probably see a world where we would just consume that currency, actually. And it's not to say that, you know, we did all this for nothing. As, as you said, we, we believe we're pioneers in this space. But essentially, the applications that we're building behind the scenes would then start using that currency, that that would be a, a natural evolution. And I think what's really important to note here is that while that might sound like some sunk cost, what we're really trying to get around here is the existing inefficiencies, like Goraz said. So buying an equity, you know, it might appear in your e-banking within a few seconds, for the real delivery of that equity versus the payment that you just paid for that that share, for example, it can take a few days. And as we said, we needed to solve that problem now for things that are around the corner. If someone else solves the, the currency part and they do it better than us, that's great. We'll probably just turn around, start consuming that and connect it into our smart contracts. For now, we needed our own smart contracts to do the, the full delivery versus payment. So it, it's new, it's, it's innovative, and it's a bit of a, a risk that we have to take, but we are just such firm believers that it's the right way to go, that if someone else comes along, we, we can integrate that. If not, then we'll keep making our product as, as best as we can. But just to be clear, this is not our, our defining product. There's much more to come. And I'm excited to hear that. And there are analogies here, right, with traditional retail banking. The differentiation between your high street bank is not the ability to make a debit transaction or to pay with a card. That's just the underlying infrastructure. The benefit to customers is the experience or the applications or the enablers of money management or helping people to manage their finances rather than you know, paying for the utility of transactions. Am I on the mark with that analogy? I think you're absolutely right. I think we today in, in any banking transaction that we do in our private life, we pay for a lot of inefficiencies of the current systems. And and most of these inefficiencies are sadly charged through payment fees. Yeah. And and you know that's why also a lot of the I'd say unregulated stable coins have have had such a good track record. So I mean you know, mostly we think uh, a tether is being used just for uh, for trading purposes uh, as a stable coin uh, to trade Bitcoin with or to trade other cryptos with. But you know, there's a whole another industry popping up where people use it to to transact or to send money overseas because it's faster, it's more efficient, it scales, and then at much lower cost to send international payments and transactions. While we're starting to look at the rest of the ecosystem outside, I wanted to ask you a question. This is one that I've been mulling over. How many stable coins does the world need? You've seen multiple banks in multiple jurisdictions, even multiple across Europe, where we have a European central bank and it's European central currency, talking about having their own national central bank digital currencies. If we're talking about international ecosystems, international banking, is there a need for more than one stablecoin? Yeah, you know, I think one of the biggest innovations we saw with blockchain, I'm going to get a little philosophical now, was the democratization of the creation of currency. And, uh, and I, I truly mean that. And I think it's what's created is, is such an interesting paradigm where provided you abide by regulation, and again, I, we, we really believe that's so important, the most innovative and, and the most efficient product should win, as opposed to this is your currency and you need to use it. I think now there's, there's going to be a little bit more prescription in, in what currency, or sorry, less, less prescription in what currency you need to use as we evolve in this space and allow a little bit more financial freedom for people. Again, I think governments will need to adapt. They, they are being open. And we see, again, you know, huge shout out to the Swiss regulator for being open to this stuff. Um, but I think we'll just see more of that. And they, they'll realize the ship has sailed on, on having full control over currencies for central banks. This is maybe, I'll just say, a bit more of a personal belief to caveat uh, my views. But I think we've opened Pandora's box on, on the democratization of creation of currencies and, and we'll never go back. So it's going to be, um, you know, the fastest horse wins. 
there's been a lot said about privacy and the design of who gets to see how money is transacted or how digital dollars or how digital currencies are spent. So I suspect down the road we'll see a regulatory angle or some sort of imposing of national level requirements for those sorts of currencies. For example, if you're using it to transact in a city or if you've got autonomous vehicles operating in a certain environment, that's a regulated space that falls under the jurisdiction of the country. So they might want to insist that any of those microtransactions are managed using the particular digital asset or the central bank digital currency of that country to make sure that the appropriate regulations are being upheld. I'm thinking a little bit further out here, but you can imagine there will be certain ecosystems where control is required. But my personal view is this must absolutely not be at the cost of privacy. So a central bank digital currency or a digital asset should not be about tracking your individual activity. It should fundamentally be about enabling efficiency new experiences and machine-to-machine type of transactions. I don't know your guys' view on that one, but that's how I feel. No, I, I agree. I think it's it's like a gift and a curse of blockchain in a sense, because it's the most transparent system there is, because every transaction that ever occurred is being recorded on chain. It's public for all to see. But in a way, you know, not everybody knows who the address belongs to. So in a sense, when, you know, there are already tools today that, that are quite proficient in determining where, you know, the transaction tokens have been and, and what they have been used to purchase with. We just, you know, you cannot exactly know who used the purchase or who, who did the purchase because the address or the wallets are anonymous. So in a sense, it's, it's the most transparent system there is. And then, yeah, definitely use cases in the future some of them will require permission systems, like you mentioned, IoT or you know driverless cars. That kind of system definitely cannot be completely open because it, it will leave people at, at the mercy of potential attackers to, to hijack the cars or, or do even worse things. But in, in the financial system, I think it's, it's only beneficiary to have blockchain-enabled digital currencies or, or central bank currencies uh, running on blockchain. And so do you guys see multiple national level digital currencies, as well as maybe some sort of meta token? Um, obviously, Bitcoin we have and we know what it's there for. It might not be there ideally for machine to machine, high volume, high throughput transactions. But what's the architecture of those different levels of digital asset in your guys' view? It's going to be a similar discussion than was like with the internet and intranet. So there will be some parts I mean, initially, probably we will start off with permissioned blockchains and, you know, later on move to public blockchains. But I think definitely there will be a breakthrough in you know central banks issuing their national currency in a digital way. I mean, if, if you look at the the rate of cash being used, and I think, you know, unfortunately, the last month, the whole world has been in the standstill. But what this has contributed to is that the electronic means of payment has been actually propagated much more than the physical-based one. So I think everything is moving in the direction of all the payments being digital. We just need like a more efficient system than we have today with like, like this databases managed by, by banking systems where you can be fast and efficient with payments, with transactions, and basically having... Having national banks, then also controlling the float, managing the float in a much more efficient way than, than just, you know, using your house printer to print some money, basically. Yeah, and 
to one of your points, Anthony, is um, I think we will see regulators like we've all agreed that have a very prescriptive view. And in my personal opinion, I think they will lose out a little bit on the innovation as opposed to if we do just take the use case of the Swiss regulator, there's a framework. Here is how effectively one can create a stable coin, right? I mean, that, I mean, that doesn't exist in, in that term, but that's effectively what we've done, right? We, we added in permissioning on top of a permissionless blockchain using smart contracts. And what we've done is we've created a stable coin that in the eyes of a regulator is as good, if not better than cash in, in, in some ways. And, and it's worse in other ways, I just want to say as well, before anybody jumps on that, I'm not saying it's perfect, but I think there will be regulators that do enforce something that really want very prescriptive control over this. They'll probably just use a normal database. They'll probably just be a single database for all the tracking of their funds. Um, and they might not use a distributed ledger. Yeah, and I think the, the Bank of England came out with its white paper on central bank digital currency recently and said something to the very similar effect. It said there's actually lots of different architectures depending on what you're solving for. This doesn't have to involve crypto. This doesn't have to involve distributed ledger. And I, I think to summarize, my key take on it is the, the innovative regulators that propose frameworks, allow innovation, but say, you can go and try this, you need to follow these regulations. I think they'll be the ones that win in this regard. And I would be amiss if I didn't ask your guys take on Facebook's Libra. Is it going to come back? Are we going to see it merge in a certain way? I know a number of their guys are in Switzerland, so they probably hang out in similar fancy cocktail bars that you guys do or did up until recently. What's your view on Libra and its potential impact on this ecosystem? I think what Facebook is trying to achieve with Libra is, is very positive. So if you think about it more in a more global sense, the amount of users that Facebook has, as opposed to any bank or nation, is a multiple of. So it means that in a sense, if we really look at one of the core use cases for blockchain is really to bank the unbanked, then Libra has a, probably the world's greatest platform to make this happen. And you know, if that really means the access to finance to people who, who don't have it right now, the access to ability to pay, I think it's very, very positive. In a sense, to where they are in, in terms of the you know discussions with the regulators, I have not been that up to speed. But if the vision really materializes, it, I think it would be something very, very great for, for the world as a whole and, and for managing financial inclusion in general. Fully agree, Goraz. And I suppose my take on it is, is quite similar. I think someone was going to do it. Facebook got there first. I think they kind of decided to to start this at an interesting time. If they had done it a few years ago, they may have gotten away with without anyone actually noticing. And there's some examples of of you know early crypto projects that that effectively tried to do the same thing. Some are still in development, some are not, um, and they essentially flew under the radar. But of course, Facebook being Facebook, and actually at the time it was in already quite heated debates with regulators around the world, it completely landed on the radar. So I, I think as well, what they're trying to do is a valiant effort. I think if they don't do it, someone else will. But what we're already seeing is regulators saying, you need to apply for licenses in each country that you do this. And again, I think that's just going to be part of this. It, it will require a good product built in a modular way that allows you to adhere to regulations while achieving your goals. I mean, the regulations are there for the most part to protect people. They have, again, for the most part, people's interests at heart. And I think if, if Facebook with the manpower they have and, and Calibra Association and the Libra Association can do this, then um, I, I think it'll be it'll be a good addition, actually. It's, it's a different take on a stable coin. It's 
a basket of goods. It's actually one that I didn't touch on because even they say it may fluctuate in price. But yeah, I think I think it's a valiant effort. And if they can get past all the regulators in, in the right way, it'll, uh, it'll be a good entrant into the market. And I think also from the perspective of the blockchain and crypto industry, I would say like Facebook did everybody a huge favor, even even if they took a lot of heat for for coming out with such a project. So they they really also got the the regulators and central banks thinking much more about you know central bank digital currencies, digital cash, etc. So you know before Facebook announced Libra, the timeline has been like something 2025, 2030, we may see a central bank banked digital currency. You know, right now, you know, you hear reports uh, about, you know, major countries launching in 2023 to 2025. So in a sense, it, it really broadened the global awareness for digital currencies, digital assets, crypto, and, and really accelerated the learning curve of global regulators in a sense. And that opened the door for you guys to come in with what's probably one of the more real-world applicable and real-world acceptable iterations of this particular concept. So they did you a favor. Hopefully you're doing the world a favor. And that translates into more of the opportunities that we've spent time talking about on the show. Before we close, I want to ask you guys a question. How can the community find you? And what have you guys got going on in your life? The community can find us on our website and then social media. So, I mean, the bank uh, announces a lot of the things it does also through various channels. There's a lot of things that unfortunately we cannot talk about. We would be very excited to talk about, but, but unfortunately we can't. But once, you know, the services are out, we always happily announce them. But I think, you know, me and Gavin can be also found at various meetups around Zurich and Zug or also uh, web-based meetups. So we're, we're, you know, if somebody wants to reach out, we're more than happy to, to answer any questions that we can answer. <laughs> I mean, on my side, I think LinkedIn is a good way, just for me personally. I know Anthony is an awesome LinkedIn influencer, so he'll probably tag my own account in this post. If you want to send me a message, happy to talk about these topics. Also based in Zurich, so if anyone's around Zug or Zurich, happy to meet up and talk about this stuff. I'll warn you, if you get me talking about this stuff and put a beer in my hand, I probably won't stop. Um, and then in Signum, I think Goran's covered that side. So I can definitely attest to that. If you want to go further down the rabbit hole, if you want to really get deep into the implications of crypto, of stable coins, and what this means for the world, take Gavin and Goraz out for a beer and you'll get all that you could possibly imagine that you want to learn that we haven't already covered on the show today. Guys, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you for doing the work you do for the community. I hope you're safe and well out there and I'm sure our paths will cross in the not too distant future. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you for having us. It's been great fun and uh, looking forward to catching up over beers in the future. Thanks, Anthony. Pleasure as always. All right, guys. See you soon. Thank you for listening to the Blockchain Won't Save the World podcast. All opinions here expressed are those of myself and my guests. If you're looking for more, you can follow me on LinkedIn for more blockchain-related content. And until next time, stay safe out there.